Mr. Michael Hishborn, as we continue our exploration of our loss of the sense of the sacred and how we recover it, what's some of those thoughts that come to mind for you about how the sacred has been lost, at least our sense of it? Well, I think the sense of the sacred uh, really starts with the sense of man's relationship with God. Because the sacred, what is sacred but God? What is sacred but the saints? What is sacred but those who are saved? So the sense of the sacred has everything to do with individual salvation uh, and, the, and, and the desire to save souls. So the loss of the sense of the sacred, which goes all the way to, um, uh, well, it goes back a couple hundred years, but we really don't see it kind of falling into a, a real motion or a movement uh, in, in the world today until about a hundred years ago. And uh, the, the shift from individual sanctity, the idea that we have to work on destroying personal vice, building up personal virtue, that personal virtue is built up by activity with love of neighbor and, and starting with love of God. Well, unfortunately, there was a, a, a new movement in theology which <clears throat> took the, po the, the focus of, um, of, of salvation, sanctity, the actions of a Catholic uh, in, in society, moved it away from the idea of working on personal virtue to working on social justice. And this shift, it was all rooted in the idea that, you know, we have to, um, we have to be charitable, that charity is, is the foundation for good works and et cetera. And that's, that's all true. But if you lose that focus on salvation, then it becomes nothing but philanthropy or do good, do goodism. And, and, uh, that, of course, is rooted in the false ideology that came out of the Enlightenment known as naturalism, the idea that you can earn your way to heaven just by natural good works. That's not how it works. Um, so the loss of the sacred, the loss of the sense of the sacred started with this new theological movement. As it progressed through society, what we saw is the industrialization of charitable works. So hospitals became industrialized, education became industrialized, charitable works became industrialized. And as those works became industrialized, it started focusing on raising money and building buildings and having more outreach programs. And through those actions, they have lost that fundamental focus on individual sanctity. And, and what's interesting, now what we see in the world around us, you've got Catholic relief services and the, you know, the agencies of the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, uh, you've got uh, Catholic charities and, and other entities who talk about the good works that they do, but they're paying people to do a job. Uh, you have Catholic hospital systems like Common Spirit Health, which is the largest Catholic health network in the United States that is actively performing transgender surgeries. They are providing all forms of contraception, including abortifacients. Uh, we just recently did a report showing that Common Spirit Health is partnered with an abortion providing agency. All of those things have to do with salvation because the individual who is undergoing these, these operations or 
committing these abortions, using contraception, are committing a moral act, or rather an immoral act as, uh, as such. And those who are encouraging that behavior or encouraging the, uh, those actions are also committing grave moral sin. So you have an in- integral problem within the medical industry because of its move towards secularization or industrialization. It's moved away from the sacred and has landed squarely in industry. The idea that, hey, we have to do this in order to make money so that we can serve more people, et cetera, et cetera. You see the same thing in education. I mentioned education a little while ago. About 100 years ago, there were a multiplicity of Catholic schools all over the world, especially in the United States. And the Catholic schools, by and large, were free to attend. Uh, If you were a parishioner, you didn't have to pay extra to go to the Catholic schools. That's not the case anymore. And the reason it's not the case is that the Catholic schools were run by nuns. They were run by the priest. They would take up collections at the parish in order to maintain the school and to be able to feed and house the the nuns who and, and the priests who were teachers. But they started hiring teachers, teachers who have families, teachers who have children to feed, and, and they require a salary. And so with that salary comes the need uh, to pay a little bit more than what you would pay to sustain, say, a nun or a priest. With that came the, uh, the, the idea that, well, not only do we have to pay these people, but we have to have school administrators. We have to have people who are going to be uh, doing fundraising on our behalf. So you have to pay them too. So with, all, with the addition of all of these new salaries that are required in order to propagate the industrial nature of the school, it's no longer an act of charity. It is an industry. So the shift from the, the sacred the idea or the sense of the sacred from the individual to the mundane or, or actually rather the profane, which is just simply a, an interest in the world, uh, worldly works, started with that shift from moving in, in the idea of um, individual sanctity to social justice. Now, when we look at people like Father Theodore Hesburgh, and we look at Notre Dame, and we look at the Lando Lakes Agreement, when you saw some Catholic universities perhaps wanting to find a way to compete with some of the Ivy League universities, and, and so it looks like they may have chosen the world in, in a sense. They, they wanted to be more like the world. This is a common problem we see throughout the scriptures. But that was less than a hundred years ago, but she, was that also tied in with you think this industrialization of Catholic education? Without a doubt, because it, the Land Lake statement, what it did, it was a statement of intellectual integrity. They wanted to say that you have academic freedom to talk about all kinds of things that are going on in the world or various ideas in the world. And so they were saying, we don't want to suppress the, um, the ability of the professors to talk about various ideologies that are coming up in society or even to, to profess their own intellectual academic ideologies in the classroom because we don't want to stifle academic development. The problem is that 
Catholic thought is not compatible with secular thought. It simply isn't. Uh, you can have a Catholic who lives in the secular world and is able to operate in the secular world. But as our Lord said, you are not made for this world. I have brought you out of the world. Okay, so we are we are supposed to live in it, but not be of it is kind of how the saying goes. <clears throat> so with the change of academic freedom at Notre Dame, you had the introduction almost immediately of uh, Marxist ideologies suddenly creeping into the classroom. And they wanted to talk about socialism and social activism and social justice. And you had a lot of these activist professors come right out through that. And of course, they were already there. It was just a matter of giving them the ability to express themselves in these classrooms. So the Land O'Lakes statement was absolutely a part of that movement. And, and it was, yeah, it was, I think it was 1968 or something around, it was right around there when the Land O'Lakes statement came out. And, and that is the, the genesis of it. So what would you find to be, uh, Mr. Michael Hitchborn, just the overall motive of this industrialization in, in education and in healthcare and, and all these other things? Well, I think that the, the motives behind the, the, the industrialization of charity, it, it's twofold. One, it, it's rooted in the love of money. Um, we have to have this idea that people are, they, they love money and they're going to do things to get money. But in addition to that, you have this creeping notion in uh, Catholic clerical circles that the laity have to be more involved in the acts and works of the church. So they, they have brought in the laity to be professors, to be teachers, to be, you know, whatever the, the industry is that is supposed to be of a charitable nature. Uh, you don't, you, you no longer see mendicant orders, men in, in uh, brown robes, gray robes in the streets, tending to the poor, tending to the hungry, giving out food and clothing and, and, and bringing them into a shelter. You, you don't see that anymore. What you see are people who work for NGOs wearing yellow blazers uh, with a corporate logo on the, on the front running around and saying, I'm from whatever the agency is and I'm here to help you. I'm here to drill your wells or I'm here to, to hand out these United Nations food packets. That's not charity. Um, but this is the ideology that's creeped in. And, and where I was going with this is that it starts with this notion that uh, that the, the priests, the bishops have seen to have brought into the church is that the laity have to be more involved. Well, if the laity are more involved in that kind of work, then you have to pay them, especially if they have families. And you have to pay. They're not volunteers. They can't. Uh, if I'm a family man and I've got, I am a family man, I've got eight kids, but I can't just give up my job and go and, and uh, start making sandwiches for the poor and say, well, this is this is what we're doing from now on, kids. So uh, no Christmas anymore. I, I can't do that. Um, but so so they have to pay a salary and that that really is the essence of the problem. When I was a teacher in, in Catholic schools teaching theology. This is one reason why I felt just like a little bit of a fraud, even though I was qualified and have a master's degree in theology, actually work in the field, you know, doing the work of I'm a theologian, doing academic work. I, I still felt like a fraud 
because I felt like I was defrauding the students of of some things. I, I just always felt that a priest should have been in my role teaching theology students because they have a special charism. They're connected to the sacraments. And most importantly, when the students can look at a priest teaching theology, there, there's just there's just more things in his example of also being teacher of teaching the magisterium and participating in that role of with his bishop of, of teaching the faith. The, the the student sees someone who he may want to aspire to. He in in regards to vocation, which all young men should be discerning. Even when a nun is teaching theology, um, a young lady may be able to discern her call. So a lay person teaching theology, I just think, um, deprives the student of something. So I had that, so I always had that that sense myself, um, and, and I felt bad that students weren't able to have that relationship, right, with a, with a priest teaching theology. So I get that when, when we start talking about, because Mr. Hitchborn, you, you rightly describe how we lost a sense of the sacred in this industrialization of charity. And now I'm starting to hear some of the things that we lost. And at least in the school, as a theology teacher, that's where I sense something that we may have lost with lay people teaching theology in Catholic schools. But we have to remember that bishops and priests have a specific charism that comes with the order of their office. It, it's actually a charism that they receive at the moment of their ordination or consecration to preach. They have that charism and you and I do not. I mean, that doesn't mean that we're not intelligent men and that we're not able to express an idea or to reflect the teachings of the church. That's not what that means. But they have a particular charism that is a grace from God in order to preach and to reach the ears of the people that they are preaching to that you and I simply don't have. So you're right that there is a sense of robbery that goes on here when, when you have theology teachers that are not ordained, that are not consecrated. And, and it's, it is a sense of robbery because they have that charism and we don't. And so where else do you think, so let's take the theology teacher who's, who's a lay person who isn't ordained. Where else can we put this same construct in, in hospitals or in other places? What else are we depriving people of by not having the religious and the ordained in these, in these capacities? Well, I mean, just look at the cost of things. Uh, I think that that's really where people feel it the most. Education is extremely expensive now. I mean, when, uh, when we first started having children, we looked at the idea of maybe sending our children to the local Catholic uh, school, the Catholic grade school. And at the time, and this was in the early 2000s, at the time they were talking about four or $5,000 a child. And, uh, you know, I wasn't making a whole lot of money. I, I couldn't afford that. And now I, I've, I've since looked at the cost. They're talking about $10,000 a child for grade school, around 12 or $15,000 per child for high school. And that's on top of the fact that you're going to be paying closer to fifty to sixty thousand dollars per child for college, and that's per year. That's not uh, that's not for the entire package. So uh, the cost of education has gone through the roof, and primarily it has to do with the fact that you don't have religious orders doing most of the teaching. I'm not saying you can't have lay teachers, but what I'm saying is that when you have exclusively lay teachers 
who have families who require salaries, it's going to drive up the cost and it's going to drive it up in a major way. This is what's happened to uh, the hospital systems, to, to healthcare. Everybody complains about how healthcare costs are through the roof and this is why we need socialized medicine. Well, no, that's not what the problem is. What the problem is the orders, the religious orders, whose charism it was to actually make sick people well, to heal the wounded, and to, to run and administer these hospitals, because we have to remember the hospital system was started by a religious order in the, in the very beginning. The very first hospital was created by a, a monk. So the idea of, of having lay people prime, be exclusively lay people, be the doctors, the nurses, the, the administrators, and without those, those um, uh, the, the members of the religious orders doing most of the care work, doing most of the, the, the smaller labor tasks, and, and even having doctors who are nurses and, or, or who are nuns and, and priests, by taking that away, you're automatically going to be driving up the costs. And then you throw in the insurance schemes and all of the, uh, the wheeling and dealing that goes behind the scenes, and of course, uh, how medical instruments are driving up costs because insurance companies will cover most of these things. It's, it, it all becomes a Ponzi scheme. And the person at, at the bottom of that Ponzi scheme is you and me. And when we look at places like some of the cities, um, some of the, um, even some of the rural areas, we could look in Appalachia or we could look in inner city Philadelphia. And when we see Catholic schools being closed because of these costs that you're pointing out, I think that's also something that's been lost because now the Catholic Church isn't in a space where it could have influenced. And now when we get to these people making an argument that, oh, we need affirmative action, what affirmative action is saying is that people need a handicap. But it's also it's also really just saying that education has failed. <laughs> that that the reason why some people say they need a handicap need to be cherry picked is because well education fails so you have to go back to this first principle and so i think there's some culpability here with the catholic church um missing out an opportunity to be in those places to educate correct well not only that but the uh the more they have to align themselves with the local government or the federal government in order to uh, receive certain subsidy, su uh, subsidiary grants to keep themselves open, uh, they have to toe the line and they have to start espousing certain programs or, or putting forward certain programs that are part of the local institution or the, the federal institution. Uh, and they always come with string, strings attached. Uh, and those strings require them to say, well, if you want this grant, we're going to go ahead and say that you have to implement this policy or this program, this history program, go ahead and use these textbooks. These are the ones that are approved. Or you have to go through an approval process for the classes that you do want to teach that if, if it doesn't meet their standards, they're going to say, yeah, we don't want you to teach this. And so you're not going to get the grant. So then it, it, again, it all comes down to the bottom line. It all comes down to the love of money, the need, the, the perceived need for certain funds in order to do what's necessary to teach children. But education is not about the expensive programs that you purchase. It's not about uh, the access to certain records or, or uh, certain instruments or really even a building. 
education is about the ability to absorb material, the kind of material that you're absorbing, and to think critically about it. And that's the, the role of the teacher is to help you to think critically. Here's, here's a, a, you know, a philosophy book or a theology book or a history book. But we're reading the, um, the, uh, the first sources, you know, primary sources instead of reading somebody's interpretation of history. You see, um, it's all, it all lies in what materials you're using and what you're putting forward and what your ideology with regard to the purpose of education is all, all to begin with. If your thought about education is, well, education is about making a well-rounded citizen, then you failed from the outset because that's not the purpose of education. Education primarily is to help an individual to become a saint. That's why we educate people. You are trying to create saints. How they become a saint is based on their ability to judge, their ability to take in information and to judge it as to whether it is good or whether it is bad. That ability to judge is further enhanced by their ability to live in society. So what can you do? This is why uh, education back in the 1800s was a combination of trade and academics. The academics was helping to train the individual in how to judge, but the, uh, um, the other side of it, learning a trade was learning how to live in the world. So that's the purpose of education. That's why we educate, but that's totally lost. If we follow your trajectory that you laid out here, that charity has been industrialized and that has contributed to a loss of the sense of the sacred because of the love of money, one of the saddest things that I've seen that you cover quite often at Lepanto is how organizations such as Catholic Charities are depriving people of the truth and depriving people of life. Both of these are just sacred and some of our first rights. We have a right to the truth. We have a right to life. And organizations like Catholic Charities are telling people to lie to get into the United States. They're participating in, in child sex sex trades and um, depriving people of, of just their life. So I, I wonder if you can talk about that, some of the things that you've been covering and how this all connects to a loss of the sense of the sacred. I'll, I'll tell you a story, actually. Um, <clears throat> I met with the top brass of Catholic Cam or Catholic Relief Services. I, I met with them over a series of meetings, in fact. And at one point, uh, I got to meet with the, one of the moral theologians who reviews their projects. And my complaint was that the projects that they were approving were federally funded projects to implement programs that include the distribution of contraception. And, and of course they say, well, we never, you know, that's never, we never touch that kind of stuff. And my, my response is, well, no, that's not true because the projects that you're implementing include them, even if you specifically are not the ones who dirty your hands with the contraception. And I said, but this goes to a fundamental problem with Catholic Relief Services that CRS does not evangelize. And their moral theologian piped up and he said, oh no, we evangelize. He said, we just don't proselytize. I said, please explain to me how that works. He said, I'll give you an example. 
He said, I went to one of Mother Teresa's hospitals once, and there, you know, there are a lot of people there that are sick and dying. And he said, most of those people are not Christian. He said, and, and I went to one particular floor, and there was a, a man in a cot, and he was dying. And, and I, I sat there, and I held his hand, and just the fact that a priest was present with him as he was dying was a comfort to him. And I said, Father, what did you do to try to save his soul? And he said, well, I sat there and I held his hand and I gave him comfort. I said, so you made no effort to baptize, to bring him into the church before he died, before he drew his last breath, which is the last moment that he would have for any chance at salvation. You didn't do anything like that. You just gave him comfort. Let me explain to you what you did. I said, if a, a starving man was sitting in the room, he was starving to death, and you had a sumptuous meal, your explanation to me is that, well, you gave him comfort with the smell of food. I said, that's not charity. And in fact, what you did was despicable. And his response was, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. So the sense of salvation the need, the urgency for salvation is lost at CRS. They have no urgent sense of, of the need to convert people, to bring them into the faith. And when I pointed this out to some of the other people in the room, they said, well, you know, we, we just do the charitable work, the, the, you know, the physical work, and then uh, we work with local people parishes and dioceses, and they're the ones who are doing the evangelistic efforts. And I said, how can you possibly divorce the act, the charitable acts of the church from her need to bring people into, into the church? I said, don't you remember that our Lord, when he went into the wilderness and he had a multitude of people that followed him, that he turned to his apostles and he said, they're hungry. He recognized their need. And so they gathered up a few loaves of, breast, uh, of bread and some fish, and they distributed them. And that's where you had the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And what did he do while they were eating? He preached. He told them the truth. He told them the, necess the, the, the necessary nature of salvation through conversion. But you're not doing that. And you refuse to do that. And that's despicable. Organizations like the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, do you know that they do not fund Catholic organizations? They refuse to give funding to Catholic organizations. What do they do? They fund community agitation groups whose sole purpose it is to create societal upheaval. They, they're, they're Saul Alinsky's community organizing groups, and they're out there to pick an issue and to agitate society and or, in order to make change on that issue. And most of them are either promoting abortion, contraception, homosexuality, transgenderism, Marxism, or some combination of all of those. But that's, that's the Catholic Campaign for Human Development. You already pointed out what's going on with Catholic charities and how they're telling people to lie and how they are illegally bringing people into this country and re, you know, relocating them anywhere else that they could possibly want to be. Caritas Internationalis is the umbrella agency for all Catholic aid and development agencies around the world. Catholic Relief Services is one of their members. Caritas is run in a dicastery in, a dicastery in the Vatican. 
there is a cardinal who is in charge of that organization, Caritas Internationalis. Caritas Internationalis is on the governing body of an international communist organization called the World Social Forum. And the World Social Forum regularly parades through the streets with big flags, big red flags with a hammer and sickle on them. They parade through the streets uh, promoting this idea of Marxist socialist uh, unity throughout the world. They have actively promoted the Pachamama. They actively promoted abortion and transgenderism and homosexuality. And Caritas is on the governing body of this agency. So charity, the works, the charitable works or the charitable arms, I should say, of the, uh, the, the structure of the Catholic Church, I don't want call it the Catholic Church proper, but it is the structure of the Catholic Church. These charitable arms are corrupt. They are, they are thoroughly corrupt. And the problem with all of them has to do with this loss of the sense of the sacred. They don't think about the salvation of souls. They just think about helping people to feel better about themselves. And that's the problem. And you're, and you're saying that the motivation for this would also be the love of money. Yeah, it all comes down to the love of money. So, Mr. Hisborn, how would you say that these activities of these, um, how industrialization has been, um, how's attacked true charity and true love, and how the love of money has just corrupted our attention to just the sense of the sacred. We just have to be these things are just ordered different ways. They seem to be going two different trajectories. And you explain how some of this does affect people just in the pew, how it affects families just on a basic level, education and um, healthcare and things and things like that. But when it comes to these conglomerates, these these organizations that, that seem to have some sort of, um, it, sounds like a, it, seems, it sounds like it has to be a RICO act here <laughs> to go after some of these people, but how do organizations like this affect the lay people? Well, when an organization like Catholic Relief Services comes into a congregation and they, they preach the good works that they're doing, and then they fundraise off of those people, they're giving the impression that, hey, if you give us money, then you're marching under the same banner of salvation that we are because we're all doing good works. So therefore, we can be collectively saved. They all profess this idea of collective salvation, that through this social collective idea, because we're all in this together, we are either saved together or damned together. So let's be saved together and do all this good work and you can give us money and therefore we are all marching together towards salvation because of this good work. And it's a false ideology and people get that false sense of salvation within themselves saying, well, I contribute to CRS. I contribute to the USCCB. I give money to my church. Therefore, I can be saved because I'm doing this. All to the exclusion of whatever individual sins that they may be committing. And there is no correction to those individual sins. How many times in a, in a normal diocesan parish do we hear priests saying, hey, if you're committing acts of sodomy, you are going to be in a state of mortal sin. And if you die in that state, you will be judged and go to hell. 
How many times do we have sermons talking about how abortion is an intrinsically evil act and anyone who assists somebody in committing that act participates in their sin and therefore commit a mortal sin? How many times do we hear that contraception is intrinsically evil? All cases, there is no exception. Or that if you are aiding and abetting communists, did you know that there is still on the books a statement from the Vatican that is that anyone who votes for the communists, supports the communists, or even is published and, and reads communist literature is ipso facto an apostate from the church. That's a statement from the Vatican. Um, not many people know that. Now you've got things like America Magazine making the Catholic case for communism or the National Catholic Re Register, talk, or, or I'm sorry, Nath National Catholic Reporter, producing articles where they say, gosh, don't you just love the Communist International? It's such a stirring, wonderful tune. These people are promoting outright communism, outright Marxism, but there's no sense of individual salvation coming from any of them because they all believe in collectivism this collective salvation, this collective ideology, it's all part of the same thing. So it sounds like on both ends, whether it's people in the first world or people in the third world, people that they're taking money from or people who they're, they're saying they're helping, it sounds like they're depriving both of these groups of the truth. And by denying them of the truth, they're denying them what they're, what they're due for, from God. Um, here's one last question I want to ask you in this this class that you're giving us, this catechesis and instruction you're giving us on this loss of the sense of the sacred, I mean, you've answered how how do we lose it in this, in this capacity that you're outlined, you've outlined some of the things that we lost along the way. But this sounds like a big thing, Mr. Hitchborn. What would you tell the student? Like, how do we recover a sense of sacred in this? It Has it gone too far? These are big conglomerates that we're talking about here. When St. Francis of Assisi uh, heard the voice of our Lord who told him to build my church, to restore my church, he thought he was talking about an individual little church, a chapel right outside of town that had fallen into disrepair. And he started building it back up one stone at a time. He had no concept of what our Lord really meant, which was to preserve the sacred to preach the truth at all times. And as he was building up this church, other people saw what he was doing and they were really taken by what he was doing just for this one little building. So they said, I wanna to participate too. And they came from all over and they started helping him to build this building back up. But in so doing, just in building that building, they also, really started to learn a lot from St. Francis of Assisi in his ideologies, in his thoughts, in his meditations. And it was his sanctity that spread to them because he was a light to them. He was a source of grace and it's got to be individual. My ability to do anything good comes from Christ. And what Christ does through me is passed on to the people that he introduces me to the person at the grocery store, the people in my house, uh, the, the, the person sitting next to me in a pew. My interactions with every single person that God puts on my path is essential for the spread of grace. 
And as that grace builds and grows individually, we pass on that sanctity, that sense of the sacred. And when we come together as an organ, as a body to pray, to pray with reverence and devotion and to make penance, offer reparations, to, to make sacrifices individually and as a body, that preservation of the sense of the sacred is what is going to grow and attract people to what we are doing. And through that, and, and also standing firm for the truth, being willing to suffer because you are speaking the truth. All of that willingness, all of that activity together uh, in, in the body of Christ, that's how you build it up. It's not through raising funds and having a program and putting out a slick flyer. It's because you're willing to do what God wants you to do and to put yourself in God's presence on a daily basis and say, Lord, what would you do with me today? And then do it. And it starts with prayer. It ends with prayer. And hopefully at some point you will be able to help somebody else in the same way that St. Francis was able to help so many others. And through that, because you can't get to heaven alone, you bring someone with you. And that is really and, and truly the path to salvation. That's the path to sanctity. And that's what we have to do collectively. <laughs> I, here I am using the Catholic sense of collectively, but as a body of Christ, that's what we have to be doing. Mr. Michael Hitchborn, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on returning to the sense of the sacred. Thank you.